Hello, and welcome to our latest episode of 30 for Net Zero 30. I'm Anna Marie Slot, Global Sustainability and ESG Partner here at Ashurst, and we're speaking with 30 changemakers around the globe about actions to take now to deliver on 2030 goals. Today, we're very pleased to be joined by Nick Ash, Associate Director at Arup in the Advisory Services uh, Division in Arup and, and focusing a lot on energy transition. Uh, Nick also has a really interesting background in where he comes from and where he's worked. So, um, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about your own background and then also what you do, and and then we can take it from there. Hi, Anna Marie. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to speak to you today. So, as you mentioned, my my area of interest is in the energy sector, and. Uh, my career is focused on making sustainable energy available to people and organizations around the world. I studied engineering uh, and also did energy economics and policy. And so I like to work on the challenges that occur at the intersection of the technical aspects and the market aspects of the energy sector. And uh, most of my time is spent thinking about the challenges around making energy affordable for everyone, um, but in a clean way so that they can use that in preference to, to fossil fuels. Uh, in the energy sector, the move from fossil fuels away from that towards clean energy has become known as the energy transition, uh, or uh, some people have gone so far as to say an energy transformation because of the pace of change that is required. Uh, I grew up in South Africa, and uh, that's where my career started. Then I had a few years in Singapore, uh, working in Asia, and now I have the pleasure of working in an Arab's office in London. Uh, for those of your listeners that don't know Arab, it's a multidisciplinary firm of advisors, designers, and engineers dedicated to sustainable developments in the built environment based in offices around the world. Having said that, though, the opinions that I'm sharing today are my own and don't necessarily represent those of Arab's. Uh, so... I've had the privilege through my career then of working on clean energy projects in developing countries, in Asia, in Africa, uh, as well as South America. So this show being about um, ESG matters, uh, automatically when I think of ESG, my, my thoughts tend towards the mitigation of climate change and providing fair access to energy um, for the, the population as well as market frameworks that enable that change. Interesting and and a really interesting you know kind of boots on the ground way of looking at it. Particularly you know this year COP twenty seven being the Africa COP, um, I think bringing that viewpoint in of having lived and been in in both Africa and Asia is a very different viewpoint from from people who haven't actually worked and lived in the ground there. Um, so. How you you've been in the energy space for for a while now? Have you seen a shift um, over the last you know sort of eighteen months, two years around it? And and in particular, you know there always becomes a frenzy around the the COP uh, each year about what what people are doing. But in particular for this COP, as I said, the Africa COP, what is it that you would like to see come out of COP twenty seven? Well, as you say, I think it really is significant that COP is being hosted in Africa this year. Really exciting. You know, it's it's in Egypt. And uh, as we've seen, uh, top of the agenda for the COP presidents um, this year has been compensation um, from developed nations to developing nations. 
particularly with a focus this year to help uh, those developing nations to adapt to the negative effects of, of climate change. And energy obviously has a big role to play there uh, because uh, energy and fossil fuels have been the source of most of the stock of greenhouse gas emissions that we've managed to put into the atmosphere. And, and so energy will be key to moving towards a net zero society. Uh, so this idea of the, the compensation from developed nations to developing nations really is a key issue for, for African nations and also Asian nations, in fact, developing nations generally. Um, and uh, it really comes to the hearts of this issue of climate justice, that the countries that contributed the fewest greenhouse gas emissions uh, to the atmosphere historically tend to be the ones that are least equipped to be able to deal with the fallout from the negative effects of climate change. And uh, one just needs to look at our news feeds from the last few months, and, you know, the, the flooding in Pakistan, Nigeria, Mozambique. Uh, and then on the other hand, record droughts in places like the Horn of Africa, in China, and in large parts of Europe as well. Those horrible extended heat waves in India. It, all, all of these things really do show the, the impact on developing um, countries. Now, um, I'm not... Uh, uh, COP aficionado, but I, I understand that the, the official parlance for, for this idea of adaptation and, and increasing resilience in the face of climate change is, is loss and damage. Um, that's the, the formal term for it. And uh, so it comes down to those societies' ability to adapt to and be resilient in the face of the significant adverse effects of climate change. And it really does get to the, the human side of um, of climate change, um, as well as the environmental side. So with my background in the energy sector, I, I'm biased to think primarily of greenhouse gas mitigation when, when we talk about COP, when we talk about climate change. Um, but adaptation and resilience is also really important because we're already seeing those negative effects and we need to help countries not only reduce their dependency on fossil fuels and, re and, re and move towards net zero, but also prepare for a world where um, climates are different because of the, the negative effect of the greenhouse gas emissions that are already in the atmosphere. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and you know, we, um, we talked a little while ago with another um, podcast uh, person, which was John Lang, who has some really good infographics that kind of shows the cumulative effect of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the fact that, you know, there are changes already afoot, as you as you mentioned, and I think really it's an interesting time to talk about adaptation because that hasn't been a big topic, you know, up to now, up to now. People are really much more focused on transitioning to clean energy, which is more of a mitigation, but that doesn't address the fact that there are there are alterations to the climate that are happening at the moment. And as you say, you know, Africa and Asia are on the front end of receipt of a lot of those um, extremes in terms of drought and weather and heat. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's, that's, you're right. I think that's going to be a huge um, topic of conversation, not the least of which, even if you don't think of it as compensation for other countries, it is, it is a global problem. And the wealth of the existing wealthy nations has been built off the back of a fossil fuel economy. And so those two things kind of went together and they're, you know, 
countries who haven't achieved that wealth yet should, you know, also should be growing their countries. Everybody wants to grow their country. And so then how do you do that in a way that on a global basis is, is beneficial for everyone? Um, and I think that's going to be a huge, a huge topic around how do we work together then to, to develop prosperity, but also in a way that all of us can continue to exist on the planet. So in, in terms of specific actions that you're you're seeing or that you think you'd like to see in terms of that conversation or the wider you know questions about net zero what what is it that you think would be a real game changer for for companies and for for organizations to really deliver on that transition yeah so if it's okay i'd like to maybe shift the focus from adaptation and resilience um, to mitigation now um because you mentioned net zero and when we when we talk about net zero we are talking about reducing the amounts of emissions that, we, that we're putting out into the atmosphere now and into the future um, rather than adaptation. And, and that's an area where I've been specifically focused. Uh, so we are really starting to see encouraging results from developed countries in achieving greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Uh, you know, there's always some nuance to the story, but we're seeing in countries like the UK and the US and, and the Eurozone, that they are generally appear to be on target to achieving their net zero aims by mid-century. Uh, there's, there's a lot of press of, sure, we're not, we're not doing enough quickly enough, but those, those uh, countries and regions really are demonstrating good, uh, good progress and, and that is encouraging. However, it's a different story when we, when we look at a lot of the developing countries, like countries like China, India, Indonesia, those that are quite near the top of the, the largest emitter list um, and China being top, um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there, there's not only a risk of them missing their targets for net zero, but at, currently the trajectory is in, in the wrong direction. They, they're still increasing year on year. There's a really telling graphic in last week's edition of The Economist, which shows how emissions continue to increase significantly in China, Indonesia, um, Russia, and uh, despite their targets for net zero around mid-century. And uh, it seems like that is true of, of other developing countries. And I think you know, there's, there's good reason for that. And you, you mentioned it in your, um, in your in introduction that the, the rich world managed to, has now managed to decouple economic growth from, from carbon emissions. Uh, for a, a long period, they were um, very much correlated. But, but now the rich world has found a way to grow economically while still reduce those carbon emissions. But this has not happened in developing countries. Uh, I suppose a lot of reason for that is because developed nations have been able to move more to a service-oriented economy. They're not as, rely, as reliant on um, the industrial sector and, and, and uh, those heavy emitting areas. Uh, and so in developing countries, we're seeing that increases in prosperity are still associated with corresponding increases in emissions. Uh, and even more so, crucially, the industry that's powered by fossil fuels tend to have a really big role in those economies as well, sustaining jobs, uh, creating supply chains. Uh, so it is, it is something that needs to be looked at very, very carefully. Uh, a good example is in my native South Africa, uh, where the emissions associated with power generation are among the highest per capita in the world because of the country's reliance on coal. 
But when you look at coal mining and the coal power sector, they are really significant providers of jobs in the country. And, and that's important in a country where unemployment rate is around 34%, give or take a, a few percent at the moment. And so any talk about reducing reliance on coal in South Africa is extremely politically sensitive uh, and, uh, and fraught. So again, coming back to this issue of, of climate justice, uh, I think it, there is a, a moral obligation on countries that have been able to increase their prosperity through the use of fossil fuels, through the industrial revolution, uh, to help um, developing countries to find ways of increasing their prosperity uh, without adding to the stock of greenhouse gas emissions as much as, as, as they had. Uh, and developed countries have made some significant pledges to do this as well. Uh, you can think back to the commitment in, made in 2009, at, I believe it was at COP in Copenhagen, where uh, developed nations committed to providing a target of up to $100 billion per year in finance for climate action by 2020. Okay, it's, um, that target was missed. Uh, the OECD um, says that they only achieved about 83% of that in 2020, but they pushed back the target and, and the, there was task, talk last year at, at, at Glasgow about at achieving that as soon as, as, soon as possible. Uh, we've seen that that's being mobilized through a combination of public funding, bilateral and multilateral funding, uh, export credits, but then also the private sector investment that's crowded in through, through those interventions as well. Uh, so to me, the effective distribution and the responsible implementation of this funding will be that, that game changer. It's, it's not just about throwing money at the problem and, and creating infrastructure. It's, it's needing to really address the, the underlying fundamentals of uh, how these how these economies are are structured, uh, providing capacity building for decision makers, for regulators to provide training, uh, transfer of lessons learned from uh, developed nations. Uh, all, all of these things are going to be required, and it's going to take time. It's going to be nuanced, uh, specific to the needs of each country, uh, but it's a really important important step and process for uh, for helping developing countries to to chart their path to to net zero. Well, yeah, and and a real opportunity for them, right, to leapfrog over you know things that we know won't be working in the future, and to put in place the, that more resilient, that more sustainable, um, future proofed in a in a sense um, way of doing pr pretty much everything. I would have thought um, across the industries and across across the um, economies. That's right. So, I mean, we always ask, you know, because this is a question not just for companies and organizations, but also for for us as individuals, you know, in our own lives as investors, as consumers, um, as stakeholders in various organizations. Any any commitment on your own around uh, around net zero or, or sustainability? So, from a personal perspective. Uh, I suppose when, when you're asked questions like that, we tend to think of those big expensive interventions that you can make, like replacing your petrol car with an electric vehicle or um, installing solar, solar panels on the house. Uh, now, I think that those things are great, and, um, but in the same way, they can also be quite daunting or difficult, in, particularly in the current economic environment. So 
I think that we also underestimate the small, more manageable changes that we can make to our lifestyle that, that can have a positive effect on uh, our uh, carbon footprint. Uh, so they, in aggregate, those small things across the population, they can result in significant emissions reductions. Uh, and they can also save us money as well. Um, so you know, just thinking, for example, you mentioned our role as consumers. Uh, Simply buying less stuff means that we, we automatically reduce our, our carbon footprints uh, associated with, with our consumerism. Um, so I've started to, to ask myself those key questions. You know, do I, do I actually need that, that new pair of shoes um, or that, that gadget that I think is going to improve my life, but you know, will it really at the end of the day? Um, and then you know, we, all, we, need to, we need to buy and um, buy things for ourselves, but when we do, uh, say buy clothes, for example, um, are we steering clear of fast fashion, for example, and going for more durable clothing, mm. um, which, which will last longer? Um, can, uh, with things like gadgets or uh, tools or those types of things, can you buy it secondhand or maybe borrow from a neighbor uh, rather, rather than get it new? Uh, so applying basic circular economy principles to, to our lives. Um, Another area is uh, thinking about our diets as well. Uh, you know, having grown up in South Africa, which is very uh, much into eating meat and uh, and eating dairy, <laughs> I've been thinking recently about you know, can I cut down on those things and and replace it with less uh, carbon-intensive products, more uh, more fruits and vegetables and uh, and non-meat products. Uh, so I'm trying these range of measures i'm trying to weave them all into my life in, in different ways uh, and i'm having more success in some areas than others uh, it, it one of the things that that is admittedly most difficult to do living in the uk is is um, thinking about fewer overseas um, mm -hmm. trips flights overseas and thinking about more local holidays uh, because one, one does enjoy the, the warmer weather uh, every now and again. Um, so, you know, we, 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 there's always this tension between wanting to, you know, to live a comfortable life, but also not um, have uh, an, an outsized impact on, uh, on the environment as a re result of that. No, exactly, exactly. And, and really kind of end of December, beginning of January, there's, there's plenty of reasons to leave the, the UK, including the dark nights and the dark mornings <laughs> and everything else. Um, I know I understand that. Um, and, but, but it's a, it makes a really good point, right? And it's also a point for companies and for organizations and for people who, you know, who are running those companies. People are wanting less of things, right? And, and especially here in this kind of macroeconomic environment we're in at the moment, you know, companies need to be making things or doing things, but companies also need to rethink what they're making and how they're doing it because that revenue is going to be shifting over time as people become more aware um, of, of the impacts, those wider impacts and companies, you know, real huge opportunities for circularity for those companies. Um, so, Nick, just one last thing, a, a, a takeaway for listeners, something, you know, that you, you think... So they, they can take away from the end of this podcast, walk back into their regular lives and think about every so often that might help us all accelerate along this net zero pathway. So I suppose the key takeaway is related to what I've just said um, in, in this theme of, of keeping it manageable, not, not making it too big a task that you never actually get around to it. Uh, quite a simple thing to do is I would suggest go online and calculate your carbon footprint, you know, carbon footprint of your, of your lifestyle. 
there's a number of useful tools out there. Uh, and for those of your listeners that have got children, they've probably done it as part of their science class uh, already as well. Uh, when, when our clients come to us at Arup and ask us, where do they start for um, uh, reducing their emissions on their path to net zero? We always advise them as the first step is, you know, start with the baseline. What, what are you, what is your current um, emissions profile looking like? And you start to see some interesting things and you can, uh, you can see areas where there's some low hanging fruit where you can, where you can reduce relatively quickly. Uh, so admittedly, I hadn't done one of these um, carbon footprint uh, tools until recently, um, but there were some really unexpected insights for, for me and my family. Um, so we mentioned flights earlier. Um, so one, one return flight for me to go and visit family in South Africa uh, is more than double the annual emissions from my energy use in my house, um, which for me was, was hugely surprising. Uh, and then we were also talking about cons uh, consumption earlier as well. And so my family's annual consumption just of groceries, food, drink, clothing, um, those things on an annual basis is, is then more than double what the, the climate impact of my flight to, to South Africa is again. Yeah. So these, these insights are just hugely interesting to, to get. And so, so that would be the key takeaway. I think the, the hope is that in, in the future, as society as a whole and supply chains move more to, to net zero and we decarbonize the various things we do, um, it's our own carbon footprint is not going to be um, linked to the, the amount that we consume, uh, but we're still quite a long way from, from that. And so in the short term, uh, we can have meaningful impacts by, by looking at our, our, consumer, our consumer behavior. And a good, a good way of getting an insight into that is, is doing a, a carbon footprint calculation. Excellent, excellent. So you can uh, go back and everyone can do their carbon uh, calculation and compare it over, over lunch. It'll be probably more interesting than a, than a calorie count. Um, thanks so much, Nick. I really appreciate your insights. Really appreciate, you know, kind of coming from having having been, you know, in Africa and in, in Asia and understanding what it looks like from that perspective. Um, so really appreciate your time today. Great. Thanks for having me, Anne-Marie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This 30 for Net Zero 30 episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series, ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.